I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the IISS, and this is Sound Strategic, our house podcast that showcases the extraordinary talents of the analytic team that makes up this ball club. And I am delighted to say that today we will be talking to Nigel Inkster. He is a senior advisor at, here at the IISS. His research portfolio spans transnational terrorism, insurgency, organized crime, cyber, intelligence, and the evolving character of conflict. He's written and broadcast on all of these topics and also been engaged in, which we will have him explain later, a variety of paradiplomatic activities on behalf of the British government, including leading a Sino-UK Track 1.5 cyber dialogue. Before we had the good fortune to have his talents here at the IISS, Nigel was for 31 years in the British Secret Intelligence Service, retiring at the end of 2006 as Assistant Chief and Director of Operations and Intelligence. Nigel, thank you for giving your talents to this institution, and thank you for being here for this conversation. Great pleasure, Corey. Thank you. So, as our listeners know, we have a, a list of more or less routine questions that we try and talk to everyone about, and the first is the tie to current news. What among your broad portfolio do you think is really um, in the news right now that you want to talk to listeners about? Yeah. Well, um, my current focus is on uh, China and technology, and I think that this is at the heart of one of the biggest um, evolving stories that's taking place at the moment, namely the um, relationship between the United States and China, um, where technology plays a, a, ma a major role um, in effectively um, determining um, ability to exercise power internationally. So you know, the, this, the, the, the trade talks that are going on between China and uh, the USA, um, which are about far more than trade, as I think everybody realizes, have this issue of technology at its heart, because in the West, in the USA in particular, we've taken technology dominance for granted um, for as long as anyone can remember. And that now looks as if it may be coming to an end. So understanding what's happening, um, how fast the relative postures of the two major power blocks uh, are changing and what the implications of that are uh, seems to me to be one of the most uh, important um, issues. And I'm actually involved in write, writing a book about precisely this topic. Excellent. I'm delighted to hear that. Uh, how it looks like the Trump administration is looking to drive bifurcation of technology development. First, do you think that is their strategy? Second, what are its prospects? Well, to be honest, I find it difficult to discern uh, a clear strategy on the part of the <laughs> Trump administration <laughs> at the moment. So do I. But the broad direction of travel, I think, does tend to suggest that uh, we, we may be heading to, towards some kind of bifurcation. The logic of everything that's been said and done over the last uh, 18 months or so would tend to point in that direction. And of course, it's not a one-way street because China, too, um, is pursuing uh, a policy of indigenous innovation, uh, trying to reduce its own dependence on Western technology inputs. 
um, while all, all, all the while saying that um, you know they don't want um, bifurcation and that they, they want to remain fully connected to the world, which I believe is true, but connected on their terms rather than ours. That, that I think, is the big difference. Um, so, as I said, I, I, I don't think um, I mean, you, the, the, the Trump administration has um, um, gone hot and cold on issues like denying um, advanced microchip technology to Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications company, and if they were to actually do that, that could be potentially fatal for Huawei's um, broader ambitions, particularly in areas like artificial intelligence, and indeed even their ability to be the kind of first mover in terms of developing 5G networks. So, you know, that, but you know, uh, it's not clear whether um, that is in fact going to be how the USA uh, approaches this. I think in terms of bifurcation, um, it's a seriously bad idea because if you look at where talent is distributed, I would say up to 70% of all China's artificial intelligence talent is actually in Silicon Valley at the moment. And mm. it's Silicon Valley um, companies and the United States uh, more broadly that, that are benefiting from, from this kind of synergy. Um, and I think you know, in, in most of these technologies, uh, the best results are going to always come from the broadest possible collaboration, exchange of ideas, um, and anything that narrows uh, this down or restricts it, um, I think is inherently undesirable, although given the emerging geopolitics of US-China relations, some degree may prove inevitable, at least in the short term. How do we get the Chinese to accept and play by the rules that the liberal uh, economies want respected? Uh, so, because that's the only mm. alternative to bifurcation, I think. Mm. So as you suggested, China wants technology cooperation mm. on their terms. Is it fair to say that their terms are continued tech transfer into China, but increasing political control of businesses that operate in China, um, that seems to me unlikely to be a set of rules that Western, even if Western governments would countenance that, that'll run, a, won't that run awry of Western companies' self-interest? Yes, it most emphatically will, and you're absolutely right that it's happening more and more. We're seeing now that China is um, demanding that uh, Western companies operating in or with China demonstrate patriotism, and you know, the, the requirement is to do so the, uh, this, this is something that's being uh, applied extraterritorially. So we see, for example, uh, US airlines who don't designate Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau as Chinese territory on their in-flight magazine maps and promotional literature are, are told that their Chinese social credit scores um, will suffer um, as a consequence. We've seen this with the NBA just recently, all sorts of other areas where China is um, um, insisting, um, as I said, that uh, uh, foreign companies uh, operating in China uh, demonstrate uh, patriotism towards China, which of course potentially sets them up for a major conflict of interest um, with the governments of the states in which they're incorporated. 
Um, so, so that is um, uh, one uh, particular issue. But I think there is a broader point here, and it is that China has, for the several years now, been beating the drum that the current um, post-World War II international order is no longer fit for purpose, that it was devised by the United States and its allies at a time when many of the countries who now live by it simply didn't exist, um, and you know, Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party certainly had no say um, in developing uh, these dispensations, and they are now unabashedly and vigorously uh, advocating for significant uh, changes, um, and what, in essence, amounts to a more sinocentric um, international order epitomized by this rather vague sounding but actually very important phrase, uh, community of common destiny for mankind, which when you break it down and parse it, as I've just done in a, an article for the forthcoming um, edition of the strategic survey, does actually translate into a sinocentric world order. Uh, so parenthetically, can I say how proud I am to be an American that the satirical television show South Park um, mm. made their apology to the Chinese government as insulting as possible to set a standard mm. for everybody else. And as usual in American society, when... Um, when major establishment forces fail us, civil society uh, rein reinforces uh, what our values actually are when we fail to uh, carry them out ourselves. But I want to pick up this issue of what a Chinese rules-based order might look like. Yeah. What is this community of common destiny, and what would it mean for countries like Britain and the US? Well, um, the United States has seen, uh, um, and in its um, ally, the, the little Satan, Great Britain, are seen as the major obstacles to achieving this order. And in some senses, uh, the United States has the role of the hostile other, um, which is a part of the justification for this you know, whole uh, structure. But essentially, I think what it boils down to is Firstly, that the Chinese Communist Party's legitimacy no longer comes into question. Secondly, that all states internalize and respect China's red lines and priorities on pain of sanction if they fail to do so. And thirdly, not entirely novel, um, that the interests of great powers to, should take precedence over customary international law. I think those are the three most concrete um, aspects of this. The way I see it is um, essentially what China would like to do um, is to use the Belt and Road Initiative as a kind of conveyor belt for achieving this. And I think you know, the, the, the model they have in mind is essentially a classically imperial one. In, in, in other words, all the value-added activity, intellectual uh, property, is and, and high-value jobs are generated uh, within China. And everyone else um, either sends uh, raw materials to China for pro processing or buys lots of Chinese manufactured goods. Uh, I think that is, kind of broadly speaking, what it boils down to. So there are two rich ironies in this mm -hmm. for me. The first is that China, whose national mythology of a hundred years of 
degradation at the hands of imperial powers is uh, recreating that story with itself as the imperial power. Uh, and the second rich irony of it for me is that if the strongest powers in the international order, the United States and its European allies, had had the rules in place that China wants, China never could have grown prosperous and powerful in the way it has under the liberal international order that Europe and the United States built after World War II. Yeah, and that's absolutely correct. I mean, I remember shortly after I joined um, this institute, uh, having a meeting here with uh, State Councillor Dai Binguo, who was then the most senior Chinese official responsible for foreign policy. And I was kind of teasing him a bit, saying, well, you know, State Councillor Dai, you know, China is acquiring lots of international interests, and presumably you're going to have to think more about how you're going to promote and defend uh, these interests, and uh, you know, I can only see them expanding. This was still when hide and bide, Deng Xiaoping's mantra, was just about um, still um, holding up. And at that point, I was told, no, 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 China, you know, peaceful rise, you know, no ambitions, you know, imperial ambitions. And I said to him, well, you know, State Councillor, um, you might want to reflect that we in the UK in the 18th and 19th centuries didn't start out with a master plan. We got caught up in a dynamic, <laughs> and it, it ended up with us doing all sorts of things we never imagined doing and certainly didn't want to do, like governing India. Right. So, you know... How prescient. <laughs> look forward to this and understand that if it does go that way, one day you'll find yourself in a situation where everybody wants a piece of you and everybody hates you. <laughs> so mm. the, um, the, the flip side, well, no, the alternative weighting of that storyline is that the difference in the, the international order that Europe and the United States constructed after World War II that had fewer people hate us mm. was because we established rules that didn't just benefit us, they benefited everybody by participation. And we embedded those rules in institutions where lesser powers had a stake and a say in the outcome. Mm. Do you see China picking up any elements of that? Because otherwise, the international order they're creating is going to have to be enforced to a much greater degree than the liberal order has required enforcement of us. Uh, that may well be the case. And I think the answer is yes, they have. But um, their focus is almost exclusively economic. You know, the Chinese line is, you know, the, the Chinese development model, Chinese wisdom, as Xi Jinping refers to it, um, has had this uh, transformational effect on China's own economy and living standards, and that this model may well be applicable to other developing countries. And essentially, it's all about you know, economic um, benefit. And, and I think this is the problem, and, and it goes to um, the question of what's happening in Hong Kong at the moment. China's response to the extent that it's come up with one is to focus on um, economic developments, you know, create more housing, better uh, job opportunities, whereas the real nub of the current crisis is not about economics, it's about civil liberties. And China, you know, China's um, system 
is effectively not really able to compute that or acknowledge it as a, as a legitimate uh, concern. Yeah, they are. Uh, China believes that since the Communist Party has been able to retain control over Chinese society, that it thereby refutes Hegel's belief that as people grow more prosperous, they become more demanding political consumers. That's actually a terrible threat to the Communist Party and to the power structure in China, that the people of Taiwan and the people of Hong Kong uh, are much more threatening to China, really, than the United States or even a unified West pushing back on China's military power. Yeah, I mean, if you sit in Zhongnanhai, the leadership compound in Beijing, uh, you are always in a healthy state of paranoia. <laughs> this, this comes with the territory, and you're always on the lookout for threats and, and challenges um, to, to, to your existence and your continuing hold on power. That said, I think that at the moment, um, you know, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party's compact with the people will make you rich, leave the politics to us, is just about holding up pretty well. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, most Chinese, certainly you know, urban middle class, and let's not forget there are more of them than there are people in the United States, mm -hmm. um, are doing pretty okay. You know, they've, in the words of Harold Macmillan, they've never had it so good. And they're reasonably happy for now. Um, question arises: What happens when you know, when the party comes to an end, as it were? I don't mean the Communist Party. I mean the you know, um, yeah, the economic expansion, speaking, you know, the, the 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 economic um, development, um, and the pressures are growing, um, and we're seeing uh, China's leadership now talking much more in terms of struggle. Um, not not military struggle. They use another word, which means you know, more, um, more more like uh, kind of intellectual spiritual struggle, um, and also the spirit of the long march, um, which would seem to suggest that they're starting psychologically to pre prepare people for a rather tougher time um, than they've been used to over the last uh, twenty or so years. The it's question really is, you know, when, if and when that really bites, and there are big issues around levels of indebtedness, um, continuing ability of the economy to generate jobs of the quality and numbers you know, that, that, that would be required to sustain this. There are all sorts of uh, problems. In essence, China is now coming up very quickly against the problems that developed um, Western liberal democracies have been familiar with for a century plus. Um, you know, what will happen then? My guess is, you know, I'm, I'm, in pr I'm, I'm in no doubt what will happen is the Chinese Communist Party will do whatever it takes to stay in power. Uh -huh. Shown that that is, you know, essentially what what it is for. Um, you know, rather, as you know, Shark was uh, described in the Jaws um, films as an eating machine. Um, <laughs> the Chinese Communist Party you know, is basically a machine for ensuring continued uh, political control over China, though of course it's not really a Marxist party in that sense. It's more a kind of curious combination of Marxism, of Leninism plus nationalism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things that has been extraordinarily heartening while watching the courage of the people of Hong Kong to protest against 
uh, restraints on their civil liberties has been the creativity of the people of Hong Kong in circumventing the surveillance state mm. and in circumventing the measures of state repression. Uh, on a scale of one to 10, how worried are you about China's development of this complex of surveillance systems, social credit scores, and exportation of that model to countries like Zimbabwe and any place else conducive? Yeah. Well, I mean, it is obviously something that needs to be watched very carefully. I don't think it is yet quite as bad as some Western commentators portray. For example, people talk about the social credit system as if there were already in place a national level system that allocated scores to individuals. There isn't. You know, there are various pilot projects, all very different, mm. and it's not easy to see how these are going to aggregate up to a national system anytime soon. Yes, you know, surveillance cameras now in Chinese um, cities are pervasive. So are they here in London? In fact, I right. think you know, Shanghai and London have about the same number of uh, video cameras um, on, on their streets. The question, of course, is what you do with them. Right. Yes, facial recognition is being um, uh, developed uh, uh, and rolled out. But we need to remember that there are still problems with facial recognition. I'm reminded of the experiment done somewhere in the USA not long ago when they taught a computer to recognize pictures of a cat, which it was able to do. Then they subtly altered some pixels so that you and I could still see that this was a cat, but the computer suddenly decided it was a bowl of porridge. <laughs> so um, you know, we, we have to bear in mind that these technologies are still a work in progress, mm -hmm. though equally one should not... Um, underestimate that you know one, one should not underestimate the determination of the CC Chinese Communist Party to make this work for them but equally one has to bear in mind that uh, um, when Chinese technology are concerned um, you it, it, it is hard to d distinguish between reality and hype because hype is, you know, is a big part of it that said I think that you know, the, 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 there is a Chinese um, model of surveillance um, that is well-established, technically enabled, and is being rolled out to a number of countries we might wish uh, didn't have it. And the problem is that once you go down that road beyond a certain point, it's difficult to see how and when you ever can turn back. So this path dependency, uh, technologically driven path mm. dependency that you describe, has also been a major source of friction in the West-West conversation, mm. in particular over Huawei. Mm. Can you explain to our listeners the difference between the US and British positions and mm. which one uh, you think uh, has greater merit as a, as a governmental policy? Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, the United States has been worried about Huawei for some while. That hasn't stopped uh, some um, you know, states of the United States using Huawei in, in, in their state networks. In particular, rural s states that have lots of rural Absolutely. territory. Yeah, indeed. Because, you know, for, 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 from that point of view, Huawei uh, equipment does have uh, some advantages. I think the U U.S. Um, approach to Huawei is very much informed by worst-case scenarios. Mm. 
mm -hmm. um, looking at the potential risks of reliance on Huawei-enabled 5G networks in times bordering on conflict. And this, you know, I mean, the, 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 this was first um, um, plotted through um, and scenario planned by the Australians, who, of course, you know, are very close to the action and have their own historical memories uh, during World War II that play into their concerns. And the Australian view was very much that uh, in extremis, a country reliant upon Huawei enabled 5G technology could find itself in a very difficult situation, yeah. um, more or less paralyzed. I think the United States have picked up on that. I know certainly the Pentagon has done. That they don't want to, f you know, they've said they don't want to fight, have to fight uh, reliant on networks that aren't secure and uh, controllable. Ironic that because secure and, and controllable is actually a Chinese concept uh, <laughs> that, 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 that uh, the Pentagon's borrowed. Um, so it, it is, and it, it's about that, but it's also, of course, about who shapes the technology future of the planet. And of course, the first mover in 5G um, is an enorm potentially in an enormously powerful position to do exactly that. Mm. Because 5G is a gateway technology. It's a technology that enables levels of hyperconnectivity that uh, will you know, uh, potentially um, fulfill the potential of artificial intelligence, enable robotics, autonomous systems, the Internet of Things, in ways that the current you know, um, um, systems can't adequately support. So it all comes together, and um, the um, state or the company which um, gets there first does set the standards, um, and that gives you all kinds of uh, hard and soft power advantages. One of the things I think that uh, uh, is very important here is that huge volumes of very rich data are going to flow across these networks once they get going. Now, China already has access to huge data volumes, and basic machine learning is nothing much more than um, computing power multiplied by data volume. But Chinese data is pretty homogenous. That's if, a really interesting point. If they could get access, either covertly or overtly by right you know, um, of ownership, as it were, to the much richer data patterns that they would get in a country like the United States or even the UK, that certainly would uh, confer an advantage. But at bottom, this is about geopolitics. I have always wondered about that question about homogeneity of mm. data. As somebody who always gets scolded by the Polizei when I am in Germany for trying to cross a street mm. if there are no cars coming, even if the light isn't mm. green, um, the behavior of Germans and Americans is culturally <coughs> very different yeah. in that regard. Mm. And if you had a database based on German uh, people walking down the sidewalk, you would get a very different yeah. algorithm outcome than you would in the US. Yeah. So homogeneity of data is something I think we don't think enough about. So I have been deficient in my responsibilities of going through these questions. Yeah. May we gallop through them quickly? Yeah. Because um, I have enjoyed spending so much of our time on the current events. Mm -hmm. But how did you get, how did you become a China expert? Yeah. How did you get interested in this work? Well, it was when I was at school in Nairobi, um, we used to have all these magazines in our library, Paris Mash and you know, uh, the American pictorial magazines. And it was at the time of the Vietnam War. 
Uh, and you know, I, I, I was fascinated by what I read um, of, of this part of the world that was completely unknown to me. And I felt that I um, would like to know more about it. So when I left Kenya to come to university in the UK, um, I took a deep breath and um, um, asked about learning Chinese, which I thought I'd be able to do because you know, I'd, I'd learned a lot of la African languages uh, as a child. Um, languages as such didn't really hold many terrors for me. And so I, I did uh, Chinese at Oxford University for three years, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, uh, wasn't able to continue in quite the way that uh, I, I, I might have hoped in an academic career because I got scooped up and uh, redirected uh, <laughs> towards uh, an intelligence career which required me to apply some of this, uh, at that time, superficial knowledge uh, rather more practically. And uh, thereafter, um, I mean, I married into the Chinese race. You know, I have a three-quarters Chinese grandson who's actually an American citizen. Um, Blessing on so many counts. And uh, you know, I've been in Beijing, I've been in uh, Hong Kong. Um, I ran uh, a China team during the period of the Tiananmen incident, which was uh, extremely uh, wow. interesting. And in my latter years, I used to visit my uh, Chinese counterparts on a regular basis to, to, to keep in touch with them. And when I came here, I wasn't initially um, planning to head in the direction of China, but it kind of happened. Mm. I got into cybersecurity, and from there to China was a short step. <laughs> How about your favorite book in your field? I, I should say, next time we interview you on Sound Strategic, I want to talk about your experience uh, running the evaluation mm. of Tiananmen, what was happening and yeah. what to do about it. But this time, how about that favorite book in your yeah. field? Well, in the work that I'm doing for more writing my own book, um, one of the things I've had to do is to dive back into what I might term you know, the, the Western classics of Sinology, books written by people like uh, Philip Kuhn, Jonathan Spence, um, Mark Elvin. Um, and and they, you know, I confirmed that there is a lot of wisdom there that, that actually would help us to uh, inform, you know, inform our understanding of contemporary China. But moving forward to today, I would say one book which is, is essential reading for anybody concerned about China is Richard McGregor's The Party, mm -hmm. which analyzes, you know, in, written in the 1990s, a period of relative liberalization, um, analyzes in uh, extensive detail what the party is and how it actually functions on a day-to-day -day basis mm. within China. I mm -hmm. think that is essential reading. On the cyber side, the two favorite books, um, really difficult to find interesting books on cyber. Um, there is Nick Bostrom's Superintelligence, which is a very uh, thought-provoking and sober uh, assessment of what artificial intelligence is and what it might become. Oh, great. I've never read that. It's, it's well worth a, a read. It's quite hard going. And then another Swede, uh, Max Tegmark, uh, who wrote a book called Life 3.0, which deals with the same um, topics, but from a rather more utopian perspective. I don't necessarily agree 
with this analysis that it's all upside with artificial intelligence. And uh, as Tegmark argues, we can send computers to distant planets with instructions to build human beings when they get there. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, there, there, there is a lot there to, to provoke thought. Yeah, I feel like uh, all the techno-utopians mm. uh, really need to see the Jurassic Park movies yes. to be reminded that things rarely go according to plan. <laughs> well, I always say I always say the technology, like the jungle, is neutral. It's what you do with it. Exactly. Uh, how about the conventional wisdom in any of your many fields that you find most uh, egregiously wrong? Mm. Well, I think that, again, I'll stick with China because um, you know, that, that is such a current topic. Um, you know, the, I think this um, discourse about freedom um, in the West in relation to China you know, it presents a very uh, misleading picture of, of where the country is and what it's like. Because in reality, now, if you live if you're an urban middle-class Chinese, you're going to have less contact with the Chinese government than you would living in the UK or the United States of America. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, they really you know, um, are quite happy to let people get on with their lives as long as they don't do or say anything that challenges the authority of the Communist Party. And if you follow Chinese social media, which I... Know, periodically do, um, it's anything other than a kind of uh, vanilla monotony. You know, it's like China itself. It's freewheeling, it's rambunctious, it's anarchic. Um, and you know, it's very clear that the you know, Chinese uh, leadership are kind of sitting on top of this um, active volcano <laughs> and, and, and uh, wondering uh, kind of how much longer they're going to be able to, 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 to keep a lid on things. So it's a very different uh, reality from what I think you, you, you might infer from you know, uh, an unrestricted diet of uh, US and, 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 and British uh, uh, newspaper reporting. So interesting. My last question, what's been the biggest change you've seen in world affairs or international norms over mm. the course of your career? Well, again, I think that China's emergence is uh, certainly um, that. I mean, obviously, I, I was around when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, something you know, not only we hadn't been expecting it, but we actively didn't want it. Right. Um, and you know, it happened anyway, um, because you know, the, the internal contradictions of the system simply you know, were, were no longer sustainable. But I think China's rise, not because I didn't see it coming, but I didn't see it coming this quickly. Uh -huh. And I think I under, uh, underestimated, and I think everybody else underestimated exactly uh, how quickly um, a technology-enabled state like China uh, could move ahead. I remember two years ago, more or less, I was in the US at a conference in the US Naval War School, War College, I mean, um, and, and, and it was at that um, event that I began to realize that uh, US perceptions of China had undergone a fundamental shift. And, and it, it was a kind of um, eureka moment, if you like. Mm, mm. Um, but you know, we, we, we'd been slow to spot it. I'd been slow to spot it. Um, I wasn't you know, going around trumpeting uh, this as uh, 
you know, some, you know, the, the next big thing. But I was always aware you know, that, that you know, once China got beyond a certain point, um, it was, you know, its gravitational pull would be such that we would inevitably be affected by it. And uh, you know, I think this, you know, we're now starting to see you know, that this is, this is the reality. And that's one of the problems of dealing with China. People you know, think, and I think Henry Kissinger has some responsibility for this, that the Chinese are you know, very, very you know, cunning, patient, go-master-playing strategists, and actually they're, they're nothing of the sort. Um, you know, their playbook is actually quite limited and pretty transparent. Um, but combined with their size and throw weight, it is still effective. Uh, I agree with you that that people have over Kissingerized mm. their view of China, and the challenge I always throw to the people who who make the argument that China has a hundred year time horizon and they're mm. these brilliant strategists is, mm. if you were playing China's hand, why would you provoke that realization mm. on the part of the United States and other countries now? Mm. Why wouldn't you wait until you had won the AI race? Why mm. wouldn't you wait until you could win a blue ocean war? Mm. Until you had peeled America's allies away. It feels a lot more like impatience or trying to stay ahead of a tsunami. It's a combination of impatience and uh, what I would refer to as uh, strategic opportunism. There are, in fact, a lot of people in China who would uh, and have been saying exactly some of the things you've just said. And it was very interesting to note that uh, two or three months ago, China, China state media were full of op-eds and editorials decrying people unspecified who um, urged an accommodation with the United States to give ground in the interests of re-establishing good relations and to concentrate instead uh, of provoking the United States on developing the next phase of China's economic reform and opening up as traitors and lackeys and lickspittles. Wow. Now, you know, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party propaganda department does not deploy that amount of firepower <laughs> on a topic unless there is some reason to do so. Nigel Ingster, thank you so much for this terrific education and thank you for all of the ways in which you contribute to shape um, and celebrate the work of this institution. Thank you, Corey. It's a pleasure.